Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Phil Campbell. Dr. Campbell is at Carnegie Mellon University, and he is a research professor in the Institute of Complex Engineered Systems, and also has academic appointments in biomedical engineering, biology, and material science. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Campbell. It's a pleasure to have you on Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I might uh, begin by uh, making an observation of your your primary academic affiliation, Institute for Complex Engineered Systems. It it rings a uh, a bell with some of our previous guests in terms of the uh, necessity for multidisciplinary teams to attack problems in regenerative medicine. Uh, yes, it is. In, in actuality, ISIS, uh, Institute for Complex Engineered Systems, is short for ISIS. This serves exactly that role within Carnegie Mellon. The department is within CIT. This is the engineering school at Carnegie Mellon. And the purpose of ISIS is to facilitate bringing together multiple schools, departments, not only within CMU but across universities as well as with industry, to attack a wide variety of complex problems. And uh, ISIS also serves for CMU as a venue to establish new areas of uh, scientific endeavor, uh, at least through CIT. And to give you way of an example, it's within the engineering school. And my training is in biology and physiology, but my home department is within engineering. But uh, ISIS allows me to interact across the university, across schools, in a very easy manner. Now, I I know a little bit about some of these fascinating interactions and that I've uh, had a chance to chat with you previously and uh, looked at your website. Uh, One of the uh, primary areas I know you're involved in is work with stem cells. Uh, Can you... uh, Perhaps just give us a brief overview of your interests and activities in this area. Uh, Sure. Yes, we do uh, a fair amount with stem cells, but we're coming from a slightly different perspective. The perspective and the groups that I'm working with primarily uh, within my labs are to develop tool sets that are applicable for the study of stem cells in general. We're not Even though we use specific examples of stem cell populations, our focus is not on any one particular stem cell uh, population. We're interested in tool sets that are applicable across stem cell populations. And uh, aside just from basic study, we're also interested in uh, strategies that could translate to practical application. One example, a a recent project that uh, we've been working on for the last couple of years is to establish computer vision methods in order to uh, study stem cell proliferation kinetics and to study uh, their differentiation. With the primary intent is to develop tool sets that will allow us, from a practical standpoint, to efficiently develop strategies to increase stem cell populations uh, while maintaining their uh, put, uh, a potential to differentiate. Why is this important? Primarily because just regardless of the stem cell population you're talking about, whether it's adult, whether it's fetal, 
it doesn't really matter. Getting enough of these stem cells to be clinically relevant is a major challenge for the industry at the present time. And so what we're interested in, are there strategies which can be more efficiently brought to play to increase those uh, particular types of cells? I realize that these are all in, important tools, and I also realize that this is a research project, so it's an ongoing endeavor, but uh, can you share with us perhaps some of the highlights in terms of uh, progress to date? Okay, so what we've been able to do to date is we are developing algorithms that are, where our intent is to monitor stem cell pop growth populations in real time. Uh, what this means is, let's get to a practical standpoint. So let's say that we have a stem cell population. We are a stem cell company, and we're wanting to produce stem cells to meet whatever clinical requirements are necessary. And we are culturing them, uh, and we expand them, and we want to get a maximum number by a certain time point. The way cell culture is done today is pretty much the way it's been done for the last 30, 40 years. Little has changed what we're trying to do is to make it closer to an engineering paradigm, for instance, in a chemical plant where you have automated chemical control, uh, quality control elements, and you're watching this process, you're monitoring this process, and we are predicting where the cell populations will be. We're monitoring changes in these, the growth of these stem cells, and we can intervene during this process to maximize expansion with the least amount of time and the least amount of cost. Sort of the operational or manufacturing side of regenerative medicine hasn't been a very extensive topic of discussion on these podcasts, but it's clearly very important. And as these technologies mature and clinical trials begin and ultimately clinical procedures take place, this will be an ever-increasing part of the overall system. Why, for our listeners, is it important to uh, have these uh, control optimization uh, strategies that you just described to us? Sure. So basically, the way things are brought about now is there, let's say we have an isolation of a stem cell population, let's say from an adult samples. There's wide variability um, in the extraction procedures. There's wide variability and the way at which the stem cell populations are expanded. And basically, it's an art form, it's not a science. Uh, what do I mean by that? Cell culture today is pretty much by the pants. So basically, you seed a certain number of cells per unit volume to expand them, you carry them to a certain degree of confluency, and then you pass them. How do you decide what that level of cell confluency is? It's completely arbitrary and it's, you're looking through a microscope and you say, well, these cells look 30% confluent, these cells look 40% confluent. And then that's the order at which you make a decision to pass them. The problem is that you can have 10 people looking at the same group of cells and they will give you 10 completely different, 10 com 10 completely different estimates of confluency. This puts less rigor into the productivity of the system and, and induces an innate variability. If you could induce a strategy simply by observing this in an automated fashion and having a defined arbitrary uh, quantitative level of 
uh, assessment of, of um, confluency, this would greatly reduce that degree of variability. So that's just one element. Another is we're in a production facility. We're under culturing conditions. And it's Friday afternoon. And the technician looks at the cells in culture. And it looks like they might be, maybe they're going to become confluent on a Sunday. And the, and, uh, the technician doesn't work. There's two decisions. Does he, does he or she let those cells go till Monday in hopes that they don't become too overconfluent, by which case they would be, it would, they would uh, lose their potential to be no good and have to be thrown away? Or does that technician pass them early and hope that this has not adversely uh, impact them down subsequent passages? At this point, these decisions are rather arbitrarily made and these decisions could be helped if there is, if their these cell cultures are being monitored automatically and predictive where these cell cultures will be, these decision processes could at least be made on a more rigorous and defined uh, scale. Interesting. Uh, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, uh, would you just briefly define confluency for us? Sure. Confluency basically is that when you seed cells within a dish, let's say we're talking two-dimensional culture, so you're growing cells on one surface, a flat surface, so to speak. So you seed cells and you, the cells will occupy some aspect of the uh, two-dimensional area, which is, you, let's say, it's one or two or three percent of the total available area at which they could occupy. When those cells continue to proliferate, and replicate themselves, they begin to fill this two-dimensional space. So the area at which they occupy increases uh, toward completely filling this space. If they completely fill this space, it's called making a monolayer because all the neighboring cells are touching one another. Anything less than that, we would, or 100% confluency, anything less than 100% confluency, we would talk in terms of 20% confluency, 50% confluency. What that means uh, from an arbitrary definition is that 50% of the available cell area, growth area, is occupied by cells. Okay. So in addition to um, the, these technologies, the computer vision technologies you've just uh, described to us, are there any other high-priority pieces of your tool set that uh, be worth discussing? Yes. Another is we've also been developing over the last almost 10 years now uh, bioprinting technology. Specifically, we are developing inkjet-based technologies in order to spatially deposit controlled elements, uh, both to create um, structures to study basic biology as well as to pres uh, translate into uh, the creation of tissue engineered constructs. What do I mean by that? So just like for your computer printer, which can be an inkjet printer, this is the same thing. So we have customly designed and constructed inkjet printers, but instead of printing ink uh, for paper, we print bio inks, which are basically uh, various types of biological molecules. Um, by example, what we, can also, what we can print and what we have printed is that we can print 
a wide array of growth factors and other hormones, uh, deposit them on substrates that we print on, and create patterns, spatial patterns of those uh, biological molecules. And uh, the intent of this is to study how these patterned uh, biomolecules impact cell function. So basically we can print <clears throat> a pattern of these molecules and let's say it's a growth factor. Let's say a growth factor, fibroblast growth factor at, by example. And we can print them in squares, lines, we can create complex concentration gradients on the printed substrate. And our printed substrates represent biological papers. In this case, they are substrates made from extracellular matrix molecules. And the way, and so the obvious question that you might ask is, how do these bioinks stick to the paper? And basically the way they do that is there are innate binding ability of the uh, biomolecules that we print to bind to the underlying uh, extracellular matrix substrate. And to carry this back a, a bit further, most people commonly think of hormones and growth factors as soluble, uh, diffusible elements. What's often forgotten and left behind is that most growth factors also occur physiologically bound spatially either to the cell surface or the extracellular matrix. And in fact, that may be their primary mode of action from a cell functionality standpoint. What we're basically doing using this printing technology is to create solid phase patterns similar to which can occur in nature and with the, with the purpose of studying how they can impact cell behavior and this means by simply putting cells on the patterns and seeing what it does and also then uh, possibly then translating this for clinical applications. One example of uh, recent experiments that we've concluded using this technology is that we can create, a, we can pattern one particular growth factor, bone morphogenetic protein 2, which is known to induce bone uh, stem cell differentiation to bone. Now what we do is we take a stem cell population and, well, first off, we have this pattern. We create just a simple square. We print a square of BMP2. There's nothing printed around it except for the, the extracellular matrix substrate. Now we put stem cells over everything. And what happens is under growth conditions, everything's fine, but now we take and change the media, which is over every cell, and we change that to induce differentiation of these cells to muscle cells. However, the pattern printed, the cells that are on the printed pattern of BMP2 don't make, don't, uh, are inhibited from making into muscle and they go to bone. So what we can actually do by using this simple printed pattern, we can start with a homoge essentially homogeneous distribution uh, of stem cells and we can drive those stem cells down two separate cell lineage pathways all in the same dish exposed to the, all the same fluid elements. Now, this isn't just an exercise, an academic exercise. This is the way the body does it. Right now, the way most differentiation experiments are conducted is that they're based on the liquid phase. So 
if you want to drive stem cells down different differentiation pathways, let's say you want to drive a stem cell to fat, you want to drive one to bone, you want to drive one to muscle, you have to put those cells in different flasks and incubate them under different conditions, uh, but you can't mix those populations while they differentiate. The body is, you can think of the body as one big flask and uh, one way at which you can spatially organize differentiation is by using solid phase components which means that the patterns persist, they stay there and that's pretty much what we're trying to replicate and study using our printing technology. We've had on, on this podcast before other uh, scientists who are involved in tissue engineering and uh, their focus has been on uh, repairing a certain body part, uh, esophagus, uh, abdominal wall, uh, cardiac tissue, and so forth. From what you just described to us, it seems as though you're trying to, for example, create both hard tissue, bone, and soft or muscular tissue concurrently. Is that right? Yes, but let's back up. In our lab, we, even though we have certain tissue areas of which we specialize in, namely bone and a few others, again, we're trying to generate tool sets that are applicable across not only a broad range of, of stem cells, but also a broad range of tissues. So we're trying to create tool sets that may give us more basic information, but at the same time be translatable in a practical application. So we don't tend to talk about our focus in our, in, a, in our lab is not necessarily to a particular tissue but to tool sets that are applicable across a broad range. And, and one of that is like, yes, can't, what, how, can you, how can you control stem cell differentiation in the similar environment to make soft tissue and hard tissue? I mean, these these are underlying physiological developmental biology problems that will eventually have to be addressed one way or another and we're just trying to develop some of the tool sets that will allow us to start to begin to do that. When you keep things separate, it, uh, the difficulty is when you want to, if you develop your tool sets and they're focused on tissue one, tissue two, tissue three, that's all fine, well and good, but when you want, but those tissues oftentimes have to intersect. So you need to understand how you can uh, control them simultaneously by spatially controlling it much the way the body is, and that's our approach. So I can understand the need to develop bone and muscle tissue and so forth, but the need to do this from a repair perspective perspective concurrently. Give me an example where that would be used. Okay. So a, a couple of examples. The focus on most tissue engineered therapy, or not even that, just most clinical therapies for repair, is to get some tissue to repair. We're not really talking about controlling it. It's just trying to get it. So most bone therapies are to get bone, but not necessarily to control bone. We're working with groups at uh, Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh to be able to control, for instance, bone deposition. Not from the standpoint of making bone, but by spatially controlling where you have bone and where you don't have bone. And what I mean is if you deal with a skull, you have, in a growing child, 
you have plate, bony plates that are separated by non-mineralized tissue, which are referred to as sutures. And these act as, shall we say, from a simplistic standpoint, hinge joints that allow for these bones to shift around and allows the skull to grow and uh, to conform as the child grows. There is a particular disease state in which these prematurely fuse, and this is a significant problem. And for these types of patients, they have to go undergo numerous surgical applications in order to address this problem. None of them really work that well. So one way that you could apply this technology is could we create scaffolds based on the knowledge base that we have, looking at the basic biology, then creating, translating this into patterns that we could create that would inhibit, controllably spatially inhibit, allow bone formation, but not where you don't want it. So basically, could, can we create a pseudo-suture? This is being done uh, in conjunction with Dr. Uh, Greg Cooper. And this would have clinical implications. Now, beyond this specific clinical application, if you can actually spatially control this, especially in vivo, that is, we're really getting to the real element of tissue injury, to be able to spatially control it, to define where things are, uh, from a multiple t and obviously from a multiple tissue standpoint. Fascinating. So if we were having this conversation five years from now, what would be the state of the art in this area, based on your crystal ball? Well, first off, will we, will we be there clinically? Probably not. We will have made, I think, I believe, significant inroads in toward making, say, for instance, these artificial sutures. Going beyond that, back to some of the, the, the stem cell work that we're doing, I, I envision that within the next five years that we're going to have significant advances in, from the practical standpoint of expanding stem cell populations. Uh, right now, expansion is very classic, and it hasn't cha it's changed very little. Uh, this will have to change, not because it's got to move from the laboratory into the, into the clinical, into the clinical, into the corporate world, and that means quality controls, quality assurances, and in fact, the FDA is going to require that, and they're honor bound to require that in order to maximize the protection of the public. So I see these quality controls, these more precise methods of manufacture being, that's what's going to be the reality in the next five to ten years. Because what, what right now, regardless of the approach, and even in traditional clinical, is there's a wide range of variability mm -hmm. in responses and clinical responses to essentially the same procedures. This can be due to technical variability. This can be due to patient variability. But this also may do, be due to therapy variability aspects as well. So there is, I see that there's plenty of room for this now. Obviously, we're focusing on one aspect of that. And, uh, but we clearly see that being the most achievable short-term goal. And because I, I personally see stem cell therapies, they're a reality now. They've actually been a reality for 50 years in the, in the realm of 
bone uh, marrow transplantation. But they're going to go beyond that to all the other aspects which are currently being pursued to various degrees in, uh, in tissue engineering, regenerative medicine. But again, what's going to have to happen is there's going to have to be efficient ways of producing these cells and being able to say that this cell population is, is as close as it can be to whatever the prior isolated cell population is. This is going to be a requirement of the FDA, and it's going to be part of the clinical reality. And that will happen in the next five to ten years. And that would be, be a major milestone forward if it does. I believe so, because I think one of the things we have to do is we have to remove, we have to, wherever we can, is control that variability. That means, first and foremost, we have to understand the process. And, in my opinion, the largest to-be-met variable, uh, the unknown, is the biology. We, even though we've made tremendous advances in biology and understanding biology, we still have only begun to scratch the surface. And there is still plenty to know and plenty to learn. And that's our biggest shortcoming. We're basically, when you think of about what an engineer does, an engineer takes a pre-existing knowledge base of basic knowledge and he adapts that for a practical application. By definition, that means that the science has to be available for him to choose from. In this field, the science is emerging. It's not mature. So in, as oftentimes engineers are in the act of discovery as much as trying to develop practical applications. And that will continue to be the process for decades to come, I'm sure. So there is still plenty to do. And as we discover more biology elements and we understand the process and what the actual, we don't even really know what are the right questions to ask not to mention what are all the variables involved and how all those variables interact. Uh, those remain something of a black box. But any, as we progress in our knowledge base, we will progress in our controllability and we will go toward that ultimate vision which many of us hold that we can, under circumstances, controllably regenerate tissues. Mm -hmm. These uh, comments are probably a very good segue into another one of what I know is a keen interest of yours, and that's education. I know that you have some different strategies and philosophies in that compared to other institutions. Perhaps you can share a bit of that with us. Okay. Yes, I'm very much interested in, in getting the message out there, educating the public. And I'm involved in a number of uh, educational programs ranging from kindergarten all the way to senior citizens. And so these programs are administered through Carnegie Mellon in certain circumstances and others. They're through the Pittsburgh Tissue Engineering Initiative and they involve, for instance, I helped to establish through the PTI uh, a Teachers Teaching Teachers program for training high school teach science teachers using tissue engineering as the uh, basic model systems and uh, this has continued to grow and flourish and be translated outside of the Pittsburgh area. Number two, a number of educational lectures, uh, demonstrations, laboratories across a range of venues from uh, Girl Scouts 
to high school, to middle school, to elementary schools, governor schools for the state of Pennsylvania, etc., to introduce students to tissue engineering and discuss it from a scientific background and what are some of the, ex what does it consist of, how does it exist, and the whole point of these is to interest these kids in science and to demonstrate that tissue engineering is an excellent venue because it encompasses all areas of science and not only science but also the humanities from the standpoint of ethics and business. So tissue engineering has such broad applicability and it can pull in people from all different areas and uh, if we can use it as a venue to attract kids, interest them in science, this has value. Next is I teach classes once a year to uh, senior citizens through the Academy of Lifelong Learning uh, in Carnegie Mellon and what we discuss from year to year are the realities of tissue engineering as well as other clinical issues from the standpoint of academia, corporate, and the consumer uh, and how, the, uh, how they all interface. Uh, so this gives me uh, a rather broad exposure, uh, an exposure to a rather broad scope of the population. The interesting thing in this is that how you talk to an uh, elementary student is going to be significantly different how you talk to a college student, which is going to be completely different to how you talk to uh, a senior citizen. They all have different perspectives. One of the easiest perspective differences between the two is that your college student is going to live forever. The end is nowhere in sight. Whereas the senior citizen sees the light at the end of the tunnel and uh, sees, the sees their mortality. So they definitely see, look at things from a different viewpoint. So it's been as much an education for me during these processes as it has been for the people that I interact with. Well, we, we certainly can, on the uh, podcast website, uh, list some links to uh, some of these programs. I know that uh, PTI has a very active uh, website, and we can link to that for certain. Dr. Campbell, I really appreciate you uh, sharing with us uh, your accomplishments and your vision and your enthusiasm, both in terms of technology development, technology transfer, and uh, education of uh, new scientists, uh, encouraging young people to in enter into the exciting field of science and tissue engineering. We uh, will post on the podcast website uh, links to Dr. Campbell's uh, webpage. And as we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of uh, subjects and topics to address. You can uh, reach us through uh, mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Uh, I also remind you that we are not in a position to uh, diagnose medical problems, uh, but again, we encourage input and questions. And finally, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, who sponsors these podcasts. Until we meet again in two weeks with another interesting and exciting discussion, uh, best wishes to all. Thank you. Thank you.